If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Gospel according to Luke chapter 9. We're going to continue on in our series this morning. And today we're looking at verses 1 to 17. 1 to 17 in Luke chapter 9. And I'll ask that you follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 9. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we do rejoice today that You are the God who speaks, that You have spoken, Father, down through the ages by the mouth of Your prophets in the Scriptures, and that You've spoken to us in these last days by and through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that You would give us faith now to hear the words of Christ and to believe and to obey and to follow. We pray, Father, that we would be encouraged today to continue on in the work of repenting of sins and believing the Gospel of Christ. That we would remember, Father, that that, that labor of the Christian life is, is empowered by grace given to us through the Holy Spirit and through Your Word. We do pray for help now, God. Pray that You would please keep me from error. Pray that, pray that You would illuminate the hearts and minds of, of this Your people. We are grateful to know You, God, as the God who speaks to us. And we ask now for ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, upon the first reading of this passage, you might think that this text is an example of Luke throwing together a random collection of stories 
from the life of Jesus' ministry. And to be honest, I can see how that would be a fair conclusion to make. I mean, what do 12 apostles, a wicked king, and five loaves of bread have to do with one another? I'm serious. What do they have to do with one another? I asked that question for like four and a half days this week. What do 12 apostles, a wicked king, and five loaves of bread have to do with one another? It's hard to see how these particular events tie together. What's more, the feeding of the 5,000, as you know, is so well known that our tendency is probably to isolate this miracle from what happens around it and, and just to ignore the bigger context and, and, just, and just study the miracle. All of that to say, it's easy to read through these verses and think, what do these things have to do with one another? But there is a theme to this passage, friends. A theme that ties these events together in a way that is incredibly instructive for us. And that theme can be expressed in two words. Mission and provision. What is this passage about? Well, it's about Jesus sending out His apostles on mission and teaching those apostles that His provision is more than enough. You see, that's the theme here in these verses. Mission and provision. Those are the words that tie these events together. In fact, you can see this in the text. Don't take my word for it. You can see it in the text. Look at verse 3. Jesus sends out the twelve on mission, but He does so with limited provisions. Jesus tells them, take nothing for the journey. So the mission is to be marked by dependence upon what Jesus provides. But then look at the feeding of the 5,000, particularly verse 12. The disciples are worried that they don't have enough provisions to meet people's needs. So what does Jesus do? He visually and powerfully teaches the disciples that His provision, what He gives, is always enough. Jesus provides abundantly. And even when provisions are lacking, He provides through the very power of God. So I hope you see that theme, friends. Luke is not randomly patching together these stories here in chapter 9. He's actually preparing us for what will be a key feature in the second half of his gospel. We're coming up on Luke chapter 9, verse 51, which marks the second half of Luke's gospel. And this text is preparing us to see what will be key to that second section. It's that real discipleship occurs only through humble dependence on the provision of Jesus. That's what we're going to see today. The needs we face in life and ministry will always outpace our ability to provide. Let me say that again. The needs that we face in life and ministry will always outpace our ability to provide. And therefore, faithful disciples have to learn this lesson. Faithful disciples have to learn early on that humble dependence on Jesus' provision is the bedrock for both life and ministry. So that's the big picture of our text. It's tied together by mission and provision. Let's zero in now for a few minutes and see how this theme is worked out in detail and how it is applied to our lives. There are three connections in this text between Jesus and the lives of His people. Three connections. The first occurs in verses 1-6 to where we see the authority of Jesus to commission. The authority of Jesus to commission. 
There's a lot to think about in these verses. But the key piece is actually a rather simple observation. Verses 1-6, to six, ask yourself, who drives the action? Verses 1-6, to six, who drives the action? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Every verb in verses 1 and 2 has Jesus as the subject. Jesus called the twelve, verse 1. Jesus gave them power and authority. Again, verse 1. Jesus sent them out, verse 2. Do you see the pattern? Jesus is the one driving the mission of the twelve. They come because He called. They receive because He gave. And they go because He sent them. You see, the apostles are Jesus' representatives. It's His authority, it's His power that lies at the heart of their mission. So much so that the twelve apostles are an extension of Jesus' ministry. They are representing Him. They are extending His ministry out into Israel. And that, that point, friends, helps us understand the work Jesus sends them to do. Look again at verse 1 where Jesus gives the twelve power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Why such a remarkable and powerful ministry? What's the point here? Well, again, the point has to do with Jesus. Think about it. What has Jesus done so far in His own ministry? He's defeated demons, and He's cured those in need of healing. In fact, Luke chapter 4 describes Jesus' ministry in these same terms as having power and authority. And now here in Luke 9, the apostles receive what Jesus Himself displays. They receive power and authority to minister in Jesus' name. You see, the point is actually not about exorcisms and healings. The point is about Jesus and the authority that He gives. Here we see the Lord extending His ministry through His authorized Messengers, He gives them power and authority so that they might minister in His name. Even so, it is important to realize that power and authority are not the only features of the apostles' mission. Power and authority are not even primary. Notice the purpose of their ministry. Verse 2, why does Jesus send them out? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Again, we need to make the connection here between Jesus and the twelve. Think back again once more to Luke chapter 4. And if you don't remember Luke chapter 4, that's okay because I'm about to tell you what happens. Think back to Luke chapter 4 when Jesus says, I must go on and preach the Gospel in other villages because I was sent for this purpose. So what's the purpose of Jesus' ministry? To proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, the same is now true for the apostles. Their primary mission as the representatives of Jesus is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. You see, the power and the authority are not even primary. The proclamation is. They are sent to proclaim. Friends, this is a, I'm just going to take a little tangent here. This is a striking reminder that proclamation lies at the heart of the Christian life and ministry. We, the church, are a people of the Word. We have been made by the Word of God. We now live by the Word of God. And we are called to proclaim the Word of God. We are a people of the book. A people of God's Word. In every age, there will be calls for the church to be something other than a creation of God's Word. But brothers and sisters, to turn from the centrality of God's Word is to turn from life. 
To turn from this essential task of proclamation would be to turn from the very reason for our existence. It began with the apostles themselves and it now carries down to us. We are a people of the Word, a people of the Gospel, and that means proclamation is at the heart of who we are. It's not just what we do. It's part of our identity. We are the people who have heard and now speak the Word of God. And we see it here with the apostles. Still, there's a question in verse 2 that we need to answer. Why does Jesus connect preaching and healing? Do you see it? Why does Jesus connect preaching and healing? Why put those two things together? Friends, the answer has to do with the kingdom of God. In the storyline of the Bible, the kingdom of God is the Lord's redemptive rule and reign over all the earth. Whenever you read about the kingdom in the Gospels, that's what you should think. This is God's redemptive rule and reign over all the earth. When the kingdom of God comes, the corruption of the fall will be overturned and the forces of darkness will be pushed back. So, it's good news for Jesus to say the kingdom of God is at hand. And now the apostles are sent to proclaim that same good news. They go out preaching the kingdom of God. They go out preaching the redemptive rule and reign of the Lord. But that raises the issue of credibility, you might say. If the apostles proclaim the kingdom of God, then where is it exactly? If they're preaching the redemptive rule and reign of God, where's the proof that that redemptive rule and reign has come? Well, that's where the power to heal comes in. As the twelve proclaim the kingdom, they also heal the sick as the confirmation of their message. You see, it's the same dynamic that's at work in Jesus' ministry. The miracles confirm the message. When we read the Gospels, we want to focus on the miracles and think that the message is subservient to the mighty deeds, but it's the other way around. The miracles confirm the message. The signs testify to the proclamation. And Jesus Himself tells us this is how we should understand His ministry. In just a few chapters, Luke chapter 11, Jesus will say, if, if, I, uh, if, if, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is key, friends, for understanding the Gospels. It's key for understanding this, the Scriptures. The miracles confirm the message. The signs testify to what is proclaimed. And so, this means the twelve are sent out under the very authority of Jesus. They bear His power in their message. And that's why they don't need any further provisions. Verse 3, Jesus' authority is enough for the work. This is also why they don't need to angle for better accommodations or more public displays of attention. Verse 4, you see that? The philosophers and teachers of Jesus' day were always looking for a more prestigious reception. They'd go from one town to the next, prowling for a bigger house or a larger audience. But that must not be the case for the apostles. They're to be content with whatever hospitality they receive. They serve at Jesus' authority. So their ministry is not about them anyway. You don't need to take anything extra. You don't need to look for a bigger crowd, Jesus says. And Jesus' authority also means that the stakes are high for those who hear. Notice verse 5. If any town does not receive the apostles, what should they do? 
Well, they shouldn't try to twist people's arms to get a better response. They shouldn't worry about pumping up their numbers. No, the apostles simply shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next town. You see, it's a sign of judgment. It's a sign that the twelve have fulfilled their ministry and the consequences now rest on those who refused to hear. In our day, this would be like saying, look, I wash my hands of you. I'm done. Consequences are on you. Now, that might sound harsh to our ears, but keep that issue of authority in view. Whose authority do the apostles possess? Jesus' authority. They minister in His name. So to reject the apostles is to reject the Lord Himself. That's why the stakes are so high. That's why the apostles shake the dust off their feet. Because to reject the Gospel that they proclaim is to reject the Lord Himself. Now, before we think more about those spiritual stakes and how high they are, which we're going to come back to in just a second, I want to deal with one more question before we leave these opening verses. The apostles were sent out to proclaim and to heal. We, too, as the church, are commissioned to proclaim. So, should we expect healing and miraculous signs to mark our preaching of the Gospel as well? Should we expect the features of the apostles' ministry to be the features of our ministry? That's the big question, isn't it? And I'll give you my answer just straight away. No. I do not believe Scripture teaches that these kind of miraculous signs are the features of our ministry today. Now, can God still do miraculous things? Yes, of course, but that's not the question. The question is whether we should expect such things to mark our ministry. And I believe the answer is no. Here's why. The apostles, as you know, were unique. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were His representatives during the early days of the church. In light of that unique role, the apostles were endowed with unique authority. In fact, even after Jesus' ascension, the apostles still performed signs and wonders. You can read the book of Acts. They still performed signs and wonders. Why? Well, because, friends, the Scriptures were still in the process of being compiled. The books of the New Testament were still being written in the early days of the church's life. And therefore, the apostles needed a unique authority to minister and to lead in Christ's stead. But once the Scriptures were complete, once the canon was closed, you might say, that unique apostolic ministry was finished. The purpose was fulfilled. And the authority of Jesus is now given to His church in and through His Word, which records the testimony of the apostles. Brothers and sisters, this is why we preach and teach and believe and practice and follow the Bible. Because it's here in the Bible and only here that we have the authority of Christ among us. It's through His book. It's through His Word that He rules over us. But still, someone might ask, okay, but what sign do you preach? What sign do you 
proclaimed that confirms the church's message. The apostles healed people in order to prove that their word was true. So what sign does the church do today? What sign does the church proclaim today that proves that His word is true? That's a good question. It's a very good question. And the answer, friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We proclaim no other sign than this, that early in the morning on the third day, the Lord Jesus took back up His life, thereby proving once and for all that salvation had been accomplished for the people of God. You see, brothers and sisters, we do more than exercise demons. We do more than heal people. We proclaim an empty tomb. And there's no sign more powerful than that. In that sense, and we really need to grasp this as a church in our day, in that sense, we are not in a lesser position than the apostles. Yes, their ministry was unique. Their authority was different than our authority. But we're not in a lesser position. We bear Christ's authority in His Word. And we too preach with divine confirmation when we proclaim that our Lord is alive and raised from the dead. So the next time someone asks you to prove that Christianity is true, you tell them Jesus is alive. And He commands you to believe. That's the proof, friends. And that means with the authority of Jesus, we are commissioned in His name. Not in the exact same way as the apostles, but with authority nonetheless through His Word. Let's circle back now to those spiritual stakes that we talked about in verse 5. The apostles are to shake the dust from their feet whenever a town does not receive their message. It's a picture of the central question facing all of humanity. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Who is He and how do I respond to Him? And it's that central question, friends, that drives the second connection in our text in verses 7 and 9. Uh, 7 to 9, we see the truth of Jesus we must consider. The truth of Jesus to consider. Luke suddenly shifts the scene in verse 7, and he takes us from the mission field of the twelve to the palace of King Herod. You'll remember that there's been some growing enthusiasm about Jesus' ministry, and it seems that the mission of the apostles has only increased that, that interest. Even Herod has heard what's going on. But Luke tells us that Herod is perplexed. He doesn't know what to make of this man, Jesus. And the popular suggestions about Jesus are, are not helping Herod. Notice the end of verse 7 and then into verse 8. Some people say Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, while others say Jesus is a new Elijah whom the Old Testament promised would arise in the final days. But Jesus Himself, back in Luke chapter 7, said that John was the new Elijah. So that can't be right. People keep speculating. Some saying that Jesus is one of the prophets of old. All of that to say, in Israel at this time, the question of Jesus' identity is, is an open question. People are wondering, who is this? Everybody is talking about it. But none of the suggestions make sense to Herod. He's perplexed. Notice verse 9. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I have heard such things? And Herod sought to see him. So Herod is curious, isn't he? He's curious. He hears about Jesus, but he needs to know more. Who exactly is this? Herod asks. 
Now, in the course of Luke's Gospel, this is a very, very instructive moment. Herod is asking the question that Luke wants all of his readers to ask. The very question that Luke is writing to answer. Who exactly is this man Jesus? Is he a prophet like Elijah? Is he a threat or a rebel like the Pharisees would say? Or is he something more, someone more, as his ministry claims? So it's kind of surprising that Herod would play this part, but his question is is absolutely central for everyone who reads the Gospel. This is the question that Luke wants you to ask. Who is this? Who is this man? And so verse 9 is a very instructive moment. Herod's question, surprising as it may seem, is both a call and a warning. Friends, this is, this is something I want us to remember every time we read the Bible. Every time we come to the Scriptures, the Bible is always urging us to respond. And so here in verse 9, that response is both a call and a warning. The call is to faith in Jesus Christ. When Herod asks, who is this? You and I, as readers of God's Word, are to pause and ask ourselves, yes, who, who, who do I believe this man is? Who do I say Jesus is? And the testimony of the Bible, friends, is that this man Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior and Redeemer of the church. He is the Lord and the only Sovereign over all things. His teaching bears the authority of God Himself. His works testify to His truthfulness. And His life will culminate in the clearest display of God's glory ever given on earth. His own death, resurrection, and ascension. And so, right now, today, at this very moment, verse 9 here from the Scriptures, is calling all of us to faith in Jesus Christ. When Herod says, who is this? The Bible is saying, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a call to faith. But I also want to be clear with you, this call to faith contains a warning as well. The warning is pictured in Herod himself. Notice in verse 9 that Herod is curious about Jesus, but that's all. What that means is Herod wants to see the show. Herod wants to see a miracle. He wants to see some sign. He wants to get in on the buzz. And that's the warning, friends. You can be curious about Jesus and still miss the truth about Jesus. You can think Jesus is fascinating and exciting and even powerful, but if your heart and life are not submitted to Him in faith, then you will not be saved. So just... I want to tell you the truth. There will be many souls who are condemned on the last day because they were only ever curious about Jesus. There will be many people condemned for all eternity who were only ever fascinated and thought that Jesus was interesting. It's not the curious or the interested or the fascinated who are saved, friends. It's those who trust Jesus. Those who believe Him to be the Son of God, it's only those who will be saved. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning, but I pray, I pray that you hear the call and the warning in Herod's question. If you are not a Christian today, listen to me. 
If you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ's death and resurrection to save you, if you're not a Christian today, then this is the truth that the Bible is calling you to believe. That Jesus is the Christ. Won't you believe today? When the question is asked, who is this? I pray, oh how I pray, that you will respond not merely with curiosity, but with faith. With faith, trusting that Jesus is the Christ who alone can save. Friends, that's the truth about Jesus that everyone must consider. From Herod, Luke takes us right back to the apostles. Verse 10. You'll notice that the apostles come back. They've returned and they report to Jesus all that they have done. And Jesus, for His part, follows the usual pattern. Uh, if you read through Luke's Gospel, you'll, you'll know that after times of busy ministry, Jesus withdraws to pray. And that's what He tries to do now with the, with, uh, with the apostles. They withdraw in order to find refreshment. But in verse 11, that plan for rest and solitude is interrupted. There's always more ministry. The crowd, the crowd finds Jesus. But instead of turning them away, which is honestly what I would have done, instead of turning them away, Jesus welcomes them. And He preaches the good news of the kingdom. And it's here in the warm-hearted welcome of Jesus that we see the final connection in this text. Verses 10-16 to show us the power of Jesus to provide. The power of Jesus to provide. So Jesus welcomes the crowd, but it doesn't take long for the disciples to notice a problem. Verse 12, it's late in the day, and they don't have enough provisions for such a large group of people. So they go to Jesus and point out to Him, hey Jesus, you may not have noticed, but it's getting late, and you should probably send all these people away. You should probably make them go home, because we're not going to have enough to, to feed them. Let the people fend for themselves. But as Jesus so often does, he turns, the, he turns the moment upside down. Verse 13, Jesus tells the twelve to feed the crowd. This, this will be key, friends. Jesus tells the disciples to take care of it. You do the ministry, Jesus says. So, notice the situation facing the apostles. They have limited provisions on the one hand, and they have an impossible ministry on the other. There's no way that five loaves and two fish can meet this need. On the surface, this is impossible. It's ludicrous. And they tell Jesus as much. Verse 13, the disciples are incredulous. What do you mean feed the people? How can five loaves feed 5,000? Or do you want us to go buy food for everyone, Jesus? I mean, you can hear the frustration in their voices. You can hear maybe even the, the fear. In their minds, there is simply nothing they can do. Limited resources, impossible ministry. There's nothing to do, Jesus. The need is beyond their ability to provide. There is nothing to do. But there is something the disciples could do at this point. In fact, it's the one thing that they don't do. They could ask Jesus to meet the need. They could humble themselves before the Maker, and they could trust that His provision is enough. And, and listen, friends, that's not over-spiritualizing the moment. 
That's not a stretch for the apostles to see. What have they just experienced in their own life? Verse 3, they went on mission with nothing. And what happened? God provided for them. They went out with no bag, no money, no tunic, no bread. And what happened? God gave them what they need, what they needed. They ministered in Jesus' name and Jesus' authority. And guess what? That was enough. That was enough. But here before a sea of a thousand people, the disciples can't see it. The only thing, the one thing they should do is the one thing they won't do. They should ask Jesus to provide. And yet, despite their blindness, there is mercy from the Lord. You know, it would be a good thing to do is read through the Gospels and write down every time Jesus is merciful to those who honestly deserve probably a smack upside the head. He is unthinkably merciful. And just as He patiently welcomed the crowd who interrupted His rest, so now He patiently teaches His dim-witted disciples. Verse 16, Jesus takes action. He blesses the loaves and the fish. He breaks the bread. And He gives it to the disciples to distribute. Do you remember back at the beginning of the sermon, verse 1, where we said that Jesus was the subject of all the verbs? Well, it's the same thing here in verse 16, isn't it? Jesus blesses, Jesus breaks, and Jesus gives. And amazingly, Jesus' power is enough to provide. The loaves are multiplied. And if you want to do something fun, read, read, uh, read commentaries that don't believe the Bible that are trying to explain how the loaves got multiplied. Pages and pages and pages of people going, but how did it happen? How did the bread... Re-? Jesus did it! He just multiplied the bread in His hands. He just multiplied... Like, the, the point's not to figure it out. The point's to believe. He multiplies the bread simply by His power as the Creator. He makes much out of little. But, but here, here's the takeaway. Here, here, here's the point that we must not miss. It's the disciples who distribute the food. Do you see that? Verses 16 and 17. It's the disciples who distribute the food, which is precisely what Jesus told them to do in verse 13. Through Jesus' power to provide, the disciples carry out the ministry. Through Jesus' abundance, the disciples meet the need. It's a remarkable picture, isn't it? And it's the lesson that the disciples need to learn. You see, the needs in life and ministry will always outpace the disciples' ability to provide. Always. And therefore, what disciples most need to learn is the humility of depending upon Jesus' provision. Friends, the same is true today whether it's living the Christian life or doing the work of Christian ministry, the needs will always outpace our ability. The crowds will always be too big and the loaves will always be too small. And yet, in whose name do we serve? The name of Jesus Christ, the One whose power is abundant and able to provide. Through His Word and by His Spirit, the Lord Jesus meets the needs of those who trust Him. In fact, one of the central aspects of a Christ-exalting life and ministry is learning this kind of dependence. This scene with the disciples 
is an illustration of how the Lord often works. He will bring us face to face with our inability so that we will learn where we ought to look for provision. He will bring us to that impossible point of the provisions are not enough and the ministry is too big. He will bring us to that point so that we will learn to stop looking at ourselves and stop looking at our circumstances and look to what Jesus provides. So look, if you're facing an insurmountable need in your life at this point, it's not that the Lord has forgotten you. It's not that He's overlooked you even. It may be that He's teaching you about His provision. And even more so, it may be that He's teaching you about your dependence on that provision and bringing you to that point of humility before Him. So won't you trust Him today, brothers and sisters? Anchor your life in His Word. Commune with Him in prayer. Cast your burdens on Him, trusting that He cares for you. Please, do not minimize that simple act of exercising trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, I'll just be real honest with you. The application from the Bible is not always a series of numbered steps that you can work your way through in a nice, ordered fashion. In fact, application from the Bible is rarely like that. Application from the Bible is very much like farming. Each passage is calling you to just do the daily work of sowing the good seed of God's Word in faith, trusting that in God's time, the harvest of provision or comfort or godliness or grace will come. So, what ought we to do from Luke 9? We ought to trust Him, friends. And on the basis of His Word, we ought to believe that His provision is enough, not only for mission, but for life itself. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that You would help us today. That You would bring each of us to that point where we recognize that our provisions are limited and the calling that You place upon us is too big for us and that we would be brought, Lord, to a place of humility and dependence upon You who provide. God, we ask that You would even grant us a spirit of repentance in our hearts and in our church for the ways that we have neglected and overlooked the simple but regular means of grace that You have given to us. Father, help us to repent of always looking for a big solution or an unusual provision. Help us, Father, to walk the road of faith in humility, anchoring our lives in Your Word, communing with You in prayer, casting our burdens upon You, fellowshipping and worshiping together with saints. God, help us to learn that that is where Your provision is found and that the humility of faith receives that provision, God. Independence. Would You teach us this, God, and would You help us, we pray to the glory of Christ, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you